0: Hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is one hundred and one point nine High FM, Soul to Soul. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kivman. It's great to be back with you here this Thursday afternoon, and we are continuing our theme on crime and consequence, dealing with our system of. How to deal with criminals, and one of the things we want to talk specifically about is what our duties and responsibilities are. So, in fact, since we're getting very close to Purim, I will not have a show next week, as it'll be Purim afternoon, and we'll be out celebrating. In fact. This time, Purim afternoon, we will be concluding our Senior Citizens Purim Mega Bash at Chabad House, which starts at 10.30 in the morning. And we got ventriloquist Gareth Lush. We don't charge anything for our Purim party, although we've got great entertainment, fabulous food, wonderful camaraderie, and a great time for all. So if you know any senior citizens, anyone you don't get heart please do tell them to join us at Chabad House next Thursday, 10.30 a.m. for the Chabad Seniors Purim Party where they will have a great time. And then, of course, in the afternoon, we've got another great program and that is for the wider community to take place at Theater on the Square. Everyone loves a Shubidub Shlemi show, so we got that planned for you, a Shubidub Shlemi show at Theater on the Square that is Purim on the Square next Thursday, 4 p.m. There's also lots and lots of other events going on around town, So just check with your shul, check your community calendar. Check the Chai FM community calendar, where I'm sure you'll be updated with many of the events that are going on. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've been discussing lots of different elements to crime. And today I want to share with you a story that happened in the 1960s in New York. You have to understand that that was a time when crime was on the rise it really it was it was a sad time and thankfully since then there've been some great mayors and city councilors and other officials who have clamped down on crime and over the past couple of weeks we've discussed various techniques, options, consequences to crime, and how to deal with it, how to handle it. Well, today I want to talk about a particular case that happened in the 1960s, and I want to ask you to be the judge, to hear your perspective on how you would deal with this particular crime. What would your reaction be? And then, of course, we could discuss what it should be and the Torah's perspective on it. So let me share with you this article from the New York Times, and it says as follows. Kitty Genovese was a young Italian-American woman living in the Kew Gardens area in Queens, New York. So, anyone familiar with the New York City? It is divided five boroughs. This is part of New York City in 1964. Now, she was alarmed by the increasing incidence of violent crimes. Her parents moved actually away, but she still lived in the city. And to cut the story this was the early hours of March 13th. After closing up the bar where she worked, Kitty just wanted to close her eyes, get some sleep. It was about 3.15 a.m. After easing her car into the parking lot by her home, Kitty stepped out of stepped out of the car, headed towards the door. Suddenly, a man named Winston Mosley burst out of the shadows. With a scream, Kitty staggered back and began to run across the silent lot but he was already upon her. Moosley stabbed her twice in the back, but somehow she broke free. She managed to cry out, Oh my God, he stabbed me, help me! It was cold out, and the front doors of the buildings around the lot remained closed. Still, she stumbled on and finally made it to the rear of her building before collapsing in a hallway right by the entrance. Ten minutes passed, no one came out. Soon, Moosley returned. Kitty tried defending herself, but he stabbed her several more times, assaulted her, emptied out her wallet, and escaped with $49. Finally, some of the neighbors emerged from their apartments to attend to the fatally wounded Kitty. They called the police. They called emergency medical services. But Kitty died on the way to the hospital. About two weeks later, the New York Times wrote up this article that I'm reading to you here. And actually, it was an article that shocked America. Because the article's author, as you If you were to Google the story, in fact, you could find it on newyorktimes.com. The story continues and describes how there were no less than 38 neighbors who had witnessed this half-hour-long assault without so much as alerting the authorities, let alone coming to rescue Kitty. Let me share with you one of the quotes that are in this article. One neighbor said, I saw part of the attack. But I didn't call the police, adding, I didn't want to mix in. Kitty Genovese's murder, and in particular, that damning quotation that I just read to you here, came to typify what many felt had become a symptom of modern urban life. As people moved into cities, they withdrew into themselves and developed a certain apathy towards even their immediate neighbors. Now as I read the story to you and as I came across it recently this story and so many others raises a question what responsibility do I have toward others? Am I required to actually assist someone in their time of need? I'll share with you, okay again I don't have for certain all the details but my family experienced a robbery in our home in broad daylight just three weeks ago and we live on a central street the Robbers had to use, had to force their entry into our home, and this must have taken some time with the crowbars and equipment that they used, the tools to break in. Yet, nobody seemed to have come forth. Nobody seemed to intervene. And this is a question that many people ask. You know the famous question from Cain, am I my brother's keeper? And in a sense, this perhaps analyzes modern society, the perspective that people have today. In fact, to quote in a journal, it says, Western jurists do not believe that a person can be made to act positively in order to rescue someone else. We're too busy these days to interfere. And quoting Hall, they say, we do not believe that every man must be his brother's keeper. Now, we of course know that in the case of Cain, The real issue was not that he didn't act in order to save his brother, Abel, but that he actually acted to murder him. And in a sense, to quote the Talmud, one who hasn't seen the temple rebuilt in his days, it's as if it was destroyed in his days. If you see something and don't say or do something, then you might be considered culpable as some way involved even though you did nothing. But that's exactly the point, that you didn't do anything. Now, to think that in today's day and age, everyone's so engaged and grossed in their own matters that they can't intervene, that they can't say something. And there's no question regarding the immorality of Cain's behavior. Some of my seniors tell me, Rabbi, you know, I walk with a cane because I'm not able. But I say there's no denying that the defense that cane offers, even, you know, to say something, to say that, am I my brother's keeper? We all understand that it's good to help someone else out. We all know that we should act beneficially in whatever way we can to help another person. So I pose the following question today. Firstly, is there a moral obligation? That's the question. Should a person be required to help someone else in their time of need? Let's say you're driving along M1. And you see some kind of a car accident. An MVA on the road. God forbid. Do you have an obligation to pull over? To call for help at the very least? To continue on the way? Safely call police, ambulance. Call Hatzalah. By the way, you know why Hatzalah was even started? It was in the 1960s in New York where Hatzalah began. And my father, maybe healthy and well, was from the founding members of the original Hatzalah, studied to become a paramedic back then and dedicated a good number of years in saving people's lives. And the need for Hatzalah back then was because the emergency medical services at the time were taking too long to respond to calls. But let's not. Throw any, cast any blame here on the emergency medical response in Kitty Genovese's case because 38 neighbors who came forth to say that they saw some part of this harassment that led to her murder and nobody, not one of them, picked up the phone. It went on for half an hour till emergency services were called. So the first question is, did anyone have an obligation the quote I read to you from one of the bystanders, from one of those who saw, was, I didn't want to mix in. Now, understandably, if a person were to interfere physically, they'd be putting themselves in harm's way, and certainly they had no obligation to do the Contrary, from a Torah perspective, you mustn't actually endanger your own life. Don't risk yourself, in that sense, to help another. We could talk about when it is okay To risk your life to help another. Because there are times when it is appropriate. And we'll see that from the Megillah. But not to pick up the phone and call. Do something. So that's our first question. Are you obligated? Is there a requirement to do so? And the second question. I guess perhaps you could say just an extension of this is. A kid falls into the water. Well, you're passing by, you're by the swimming pool. Okay, maybe make it a little more complicated. You're... Adam Shalanga, you're in Cape Town, you're at the coast, and it's a stormy day, the conditions are dangerous. Do you have an obligation to put yourself at risk? And that could take us back to our previous discussion. Halachically, to what extent would you? Because it's not a clear-cut black and white answer. But this is something I'd like to discuss with you and would love to get your participation in this discussion. So please feel free to WhatsApp us here in the studio, 061-895-1019. Again, 061-895-1019. And when we're back, we'll take your questions and discuss this fascinating Alachic matter. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 FM. And welcome back. we got Pick and Pay Norwood Hypermarket have these pocket saving sweet deals just for you no name macaroni or spaghetti five hundred grams is eight ninety nine long life milk six one liter bottles just fifty nine ninety nine salad farm eggplant mayonnaise five hundred grams is fifty two ninety nine clover cheddar gouda or tussers, eight hundred grams just seventy nine ninety nine catch these and many more specials in store these specials are exclusive to pick and pay Norwood hyper and only while stocks last they can pay norwood hyper the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot so our question for discussion was to what extent are we obligated are we required to help another person out and to what extent should we even put ourselves at risk now Like I said, over the past couple of weeks, we've been just discussing purely the secular perspective versus the Torah perspective. From a secular perspective, as I mentioned a moment ago, many might say, there is no obligation for you to interfere. It would be nice, you could be a good Samaritan, but you have no responsibility to. Let's analyze the Purim story a little bit and to see how this dilemma actually finds expression in one of the Megillah's most dramatic moments. And in a sense... This scene is a pivotal point of the entire Purim story. So, I'm going to fast forward into the Megillah, because you're going to read it next week, after three chapters of dramatic build-up. Everything is in place. We know that Haman's plotting to kill the Jews. Final solution, extermination, annihilation of the entire Jewish nation. And now, Mordechai is begging Esther, as she is in the best position to help She's the queen and there she is. She won the national beauty pageant and she is the Persian queen, of the entire 127 provinces, the wife of King Ahasuerus. Now we know that Amon's plan is in place and Mordecai, Esther's uncle or cousin, depending which version we understand, he discovers the plot. And he informs Esther. We can read it in the Megillah. Esther summons Hasach, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed before her, and she commanded him concerning Mordechai. He is going to be the go-between. And she wants more details, more information. Mordechai said, He gave over all the information about what had befallen him and the full account of the silver that Haman had proposed to weigh out into the king's treasuries on the Jews' account for our extermination. Continuing in chapter 4 of the Megillah. And the copy of the writ of the decree was given in Shushan to destroy them. he gave to show Esther, to tell her, and to order her to come before the king, to beseech the king and to beg him for her people. We hear Mordechai's urgency in his plea. And how does Esther respond? Despite the ear of destiny to Mordechai's cry, let's hear Esther's response. If you want to continue in your Megillah, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Esther says to this is what you're going to inform Mordechai. Hamelech All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any person, man or woman who comes to the king into the inner court, who is not summoned there is but one law for them to be put to death, except the one whom the king extends the golden scepter, that he may live. But I, I have not been summoned to come to the king for already thirty days. You see, things are not that simple in the royal Persian court. Esther insists you don't just simply walk into the king whenever you wish. Even the queen has to be summoned. And after a full month of not being called, Esther didn't think her chances were actually that great for a surprise visit, at least so it seems, from these verses of the Megillah that I just read. And for Mordecai's response, he appears to be shocked by Esther's defeatism. And I want to read to you now Mordecai's response. And he feels that Esther's giving a cold indifference to the fate of her people. And it's at this critical moment, how can she not be prepared to give up her life, to risk her being for her people and his response to Esther is wild let's read it it's no holds barred quite surprising the way he speaks to his niece I'm going to continue with verse 13 he says as follows <laughs> Mordechai reordered to reply to Esther again through Hasach the middle man. Do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from all the Jews. You think that you are elite, that you're special, that you could live a better life because you're in the palace, because you're married to Achashverosh. Uh ah For if you remain silent at this time, Orichai says to Esther, Then relief and rescue is going to come for the Jews from another place. And you and your entire ancestry, your parents' household, will perish. And here listen to Mordechai's concluding words. And who even knows? If it was for this moment that you were even chosen as the queen. You might think it's because of your pretty looks, your appearance, says Mordechai. This time, you think you were chosen not for any other reason perhaps just to save your people. And in the face of Mordecai's stern words, we see how Esther just turns around, just like that. Suddenly she's up for the challenge, she develops a plan of action, and she asks only one thing, that the Jews pray and fast for her, and in the bluntest terms, Esther declares... That she is now prepared. That she is going to pay the ultimate sacrifice for her people. Let's continue reading the Megillah, verse 16 of chapter 4. She says, She tells Mordechai, go assemble all the Jews and you're going to You are going to fast on my behalf. You're not going to eat or drink for three days and three nights. And she says, Don't worry, Gaman, even Aroisai meet I and my maidens will also fast like this. V'chein Avo Elamelech, and as such I will come to the king. And she concludes, even Shalokadas, even if not, even if I'm not cold, even if I'm not summoned with the golden scepter. And and we throw in a little bit of Tishabav and Purim to make those who are Hasidically challenged a little happy, a little Tishabov tune. And she says, And if I'll perish, then I'll perish. And so here we have Esther making a complete change. She says, I will go into Ahashraosh, even uncalled, unsummoned, and I'll play my role, I'll play my part. So now we see if Esther really was harboring feelings of hesitance, of reservation. All of a sudden she turns around. Maybe she falls to her Mordechai's threats. And she says, well, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'll do whatever it takes. Now, one would imagine, one would expect a woman of Esther's righteousness to be motivated by altruism. Not just by base self-preservation as we see Mordechai threatening her but if she wasn't just trying to save her own skin what was the grounds for her initial opposition and with this perhaps we could understand our initial question about to what extent to what degree one ought to risk their lives to help save someone else and that we're going to analyze in our remaining moments when we're right back (laughs) Two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. And welcome back in our last remaining 10 minutes. We're going to analyze a little bit of this enigmatic story, how Esther at first appears to be the one who is chosen as the queen, and a seems to be... At first, when Mordechai asks her to help her people, she seems to be somewhat help, uh, reluctant, hesitant to help. And our Mordechai responds so sharply. And all of a sudden, Esther shifts 180 degrees, going full steam ahead. And the question is, what is going on here? And let's discuss some of the explanations. And perhaps they could take us back to our crime and consequence discussion. So, some of the commentators discuss this. And one of the simple explanations is that Esther's evasion is that she and Mordechai were just arguing about time frames. You see, Mordechai insisted that Esther approach the king immediately, instantly. And Esther, on the other hand, was advocating as a woman for a more measured, deliberate strategy. Let's strategize. Now, she hasn't seen the king for over a month. She figures, why rush in with that's gonna be rash and irresponsible. Why risk upsetting the king? And that, who knows how that will jeopardize any kind of chance of opportunity that she could help Mordecai in convincing Achashferosh to overturn this decree. So perhaps Esther was simply in favor of waiting to see if the king would perhaps call her himself. Maybe it's just a matter of days, you know? He hasn't seen his wife in a month. It's time already. Either way, she felt there's no need to rush things. You have to understand that this is still 11 months away from the final solution, date of extermination. So this is one of the discussions. Rashi, in fact, discusses this element in the Vilna Gaon also. That simply put, she felt it wouldn't be effective to just run in. It would might even ruin things. And so, according to this understanding... Esther was saying, let's see if we could buy a little bit of time. But what about the rest of Mordecai's response? What about the rest of this discussion? Okay. What is going on here? Why does Esther, Why does Mordecai then threaten her? Don't imagine that you're going to escape the king's house for even a moment. You're going to be like the rest of them. You know, you think about it in, in later times of history. Any Jews who tried in whatever way possible to be more German, it didn't help them. They weren't able to escape annihilation when the Nazis came to power. It didn't help them. So why is Mordechai threatening Esther if Esther's on the same page as him? She just is trying to strategize a solution that would work better. She says, let's not jump into things. So that's one part of the discussion. But maybe there's actually an ethical and halachic argument concerning the extent of her duty to risk herself and to jeopardize the entire plan. And this in itself is a more technical argument. Now, they weren't necessarily having this specific argument, but in the Talmud, it's an argument, a discussion that we could learn from, that we could glean insight today from this type of dilemma. And so if we explore it a little further, maybe we could recognize some ideas that will help us in our opening question. Now, generally, the civil authorities, I would say, and certainly from our discussions over the last couple of weeks of crime and consequence and surveying a lot of the different perspectives, we know that secular law is very much concerned with people's rights, not as much about our responsibilities and duties. People are born with certain fundamental liberties and only submit ourselves to the authority of the state in order to safeguard those rights, those freedoms. And over the past couple of weeks, we examined our rights from the Magna Carta, which gave people rights in a sense that was the superiors giving rights to the inferiors. So that wasn't totally free rights. Then, of course, came the Declaration of Independence in the United States, which came with its own Bill of Rights, which includes the United States Constitution that gives the citizens rights. And every country has its own Bill of Rights. Here in South Africa we have Batopela, which says people first. It gives us our rights. And the basic premise of Batopela is that to ensure that you do not encroach on other people's freedom and well-being. In simple terms, the country will prevent its citizens from harming each other. It's the police department's responsibility to do what they can to protect us, to safeguard us. But Batapella does not force you to do anything on behalf of another. You could be a good Samaritan. For the most part, if you witness a crime and you see somebody in danger, well, right here in South Africa, the law will not require you to alert the authorities. It is nice if you do it. Absolutely nice. And certainly, there are laws in the country, in certain particular cases, that will perhaps compel you to come forward and those might have to do with uh, various laws, I wouldn't have to go into molestation and whistleblowers that are necessary for that, and there are laws today that will protect you, but you're a good Samaritan otherwise, if you come forward, but you're not required to. Now in Israel, there's in fact a law that was implemented in the 1990s called the Chok Lo Ta'amod Law Amod Law what is that law? We have a verse in the book of Ayikar that we just started reading this week, which says, Lo adam re'echa. It's a law that we discussed last week, not to stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. And in fact, that's followed by the words, "Ani Hashem, I am the Lord. So this law, which is part of Israel's law, tells us that if you see something, don't just stand by. You have the opportunity to interfere. Unlike secular law, or many other systems that talk about you have no, it's, you could be a good Samaritan. The Torah's law says that you have to actively help somebody else in a time when you can. In fact, from the verse it seems that it's an obligation. Do not stand idly by. We don't just inhabit a world as unattached individuals. But we're members of a broader community. And we have to care for one another. We have a responsibility for one another. So if you see a car accident, if you see somebody again, risks could be much higher than when it comes to more complicated cases. But the Torah says you actually have a responsibility to interfere. You have a responsibility to go there and to do what you can, to play your role. And perhaps this is the debate that Mordechai and Esther were having. Because Society says you might not have the duty to rescue. And that's common in laws amongst many countries. But Halacha says that your intervention is imperative. The only question that might stand in here is, to what extent you should risk yourself? To what extent do you have to provide assistance to an individual in danger? That then is a more complex area. And this is the debate that Mordechai and Esther were arguing about. Did she need to risk her life? Mordechai says, the matter is urgent. It's up to you. Because if you don't interfere right now, now if you might recall, in previous shows we discussed about the degree of risk. When it comes to certain procedures, medical procedures, there are certain degrees of risk. Mordechai and Esther's debate then was, is this a moment where what, where's the greater danger? Is her going to the king sooner, jeopardizing the potential of saving the Jews? Or are the factors related to the fact that the Jews are in certain danger and she is only in possible danger? And that is a matter that the Talmud discusses in greater detail of which is a greater risk factor. Potential or certain? When there's no doubt that one's in danger but there's a doubt whether you're jumping into the water to help them, then you jump into the water to help them. And that, of course, is a more complex matter, which we'll have to discuss another time. For today, ladies and gents, wishing you a fabulous weekend, a great Shabbos, a meaningful, purposeful, and exciting Purim next week. Get into the Purim mode already now. Start experiencing the joy and the ecstatic celebration. Looking forward to be back with you, same time, same place, in two weeks' time. Stay tuned for Fresh Thinking up next, right after the news. Have a great day.